0: Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hi, Family Secrets listeners. It's Danny, again. I hope you found the special bonus episode with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk helpful, illuminating, even soothing. It's so important to recognize that we're all in this together and that it's hard and that it's okay to admit that it's hard. The more we tell the truth of ourselves and our lives, the better off we'll be when we're on the other side of this. And we will be on the other side of this. Here's the portion of the evening in which the audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire asked questions. Oh, and stay tuned for more great bonus content as we work on the fourth season of Family Secrets, which will launch in October. I can't wait. I think I'm going to open it up to some questions here because we have a nice pile of them. Okay, we are a group of almost 20 half-siblings that just found out within the past two years about each other through 23andMe. It has been a most positive experience for most. How often do you hear positive stories? I hear positive stories really quite often. Um, I also hear painful, difficult stories. I think one of the things that's so complex about this moment of time that we're in where so many of these stories are pouring out is that there's no template. There are no rules. There's no playbook. There's no one-size-fits-all. And um, But I think what it has to do with a lot is some combination of the ineffable, like where people are in their lives and whether they're uh, kind of open and able to incorporate a staggering new reality. I mean, for those of you who have not had this experience, imagine waking up one day and finding out that you have 20 half-siblings. It's a, a shocking, stunning thing, and very often um, the initial response is, in my experience just anecdotally, very the initial response is to feel threatened and what do you mean and uh, overwhelmed, and there's a... a I think of a very human, primitive, primal um, uh, feeling of like the other, the interloper, the stranger. I mean, you know, see the Bible, it's full of that kind of stuff. But then moving past that, what I'm seeing is that more and more people are um, inclined to be kind to each other because this is so clearly. Of a kind of epidemic proportion, because of the sheer numbers of DNA tests that are being taken and the numbers of people who are making these discoveries, it's hundreds of thousands of people a year. Um, and so, I've spoken a lot at bioethics programs around the country, and one of the things that I've come to is like when people say, "What do you think it boils down to?" It turns out that it's a, it's an ethical term kindness, can we treat each other with kindness, and and even if this is, you know, not the story we wanted, it's the story we got, and um, even if, you know, people were promised anonymity, you know, 50, 60 years ago, 40 years ago, science changed things, and what are we going to do now, um, you know, with this new, um, you know, this new information that we have, um, but yes, I mean I met I have a I have a friend, a good friend who I've made in the last few years who discovered she was donor conceived and she's discovered forty-seven half siblings. This is happening all the time. And and um I think it's utterly, utterly wonderful that um that 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 you're able to know each other and, and be with each other. I by the way, and this is probably a question that's even in the pile. I am the only donor-conceived person I know who has discovered absolutely zero half-siblings. Mm. It's like, I'm an outlier. I'm, I was an only child then. I'm an, <laughs> I'm an only, like, whatever this thing is, I'm that. Yeah.
2: But my reaction is um, that we should know, we should learn from you guys, and that I hope you can find a way of chronicling what, you, what you're doing, and maybe set up a collective depository of your thoughts. It might create some tensions between all of you, um, but i would be very interesting to hear what the process is like. I think the world would love to hear that. Um, another option I'm thinking of is to get a singer-songwriter like Mary Gauthier, uh, who herself is adopted and has quite a story there, uh, who does songwriting with people. And she goes with groups of people and writes songs about their collective experience. and Everybody Mm. chips in their own lyrics and together to make a song Mm. about their experience. But something uh, that symbolizes and and collects what this process is like, uh, our discovery.
1: And illuminates it because there is very, very little in the way of studies, surveys, research about this world because it was a secret world. So... It couldn't be studied because it wasn't known. And now there are so many people who don't have a lot of guideposts. I mean, they're turning to my book um, because it illuminates or reflects to them their own internal experiences.
2: But, like, my son has a podcast called Love and Radio, and he had an episode where two siblings discover they have a half-sibling, and they are excited about it, and it turns out he was a psychopath who tries to take advantage Mm -hmm. of them. And then they talk about the moral dilemmas that comes up. with So it's never complicated. It's it's really good to really see what the variations on this theme are. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So this one's for you, Bessel, I would say. Um, I'm very concerned about the magnitude of large T trauma being created, e.g. immigration trauma inflicted at the border and all that uh, entails. Any suggestions on how we can counteract that?
2: You know, one reaction I have about what's happening at the border is that, unfortunately, it's the extreme, but it's likely that in your own town or one town across, kids are being raised in situations that are not all that much better. I think what's happening on the border is a war crime, and people should be punished like war criminals for doing what they're doing. Uh, We know exactly what happens to kids we are being treated like that, and it's torture, and these kids will never recover from it, and it's horrendous, and it's unbelievable that this is happening in our country, knowing that we know what we're doing. It's inexcusable.
1: We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets.
3: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I used to have so many men.
0: How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications.
3: She had a Harvard plaque
0: get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were
4: going to go there on this.
0: listen Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Here's an interesting question as well. With early childhood trauma, can dissociation lead to repression of all the bad as a child seeks to be perfect only to shockingly resurface 50 years later when re-traumatized, with dissociation reappearing as memories resurface? If so, can the dissociation stop?
2: Well, that's, that's a, a classical situation. You know, you know, There's hints of that in your book also. We all like to believe that we were raised in happy families because we all believe we are responsible for the family that we are raised in. So if our family is violent, we'd want to hide it from ourselves. And from our consciousness and certainly from other people, you know, I'm not going to tell you what my family did. That was crazy because otherwise you'll think badly about me. And so we, it's very important for us to keep a happy face. Huh? And dissociation, I'm curious what you think about it. To some degree is a good thing. It allows you to survive. And so uh, it's very common that people just split off part of it and say it's not happening I've met many people who were sexually abused, who don't remember the abuse from the night before. Go to school, happy-go-lucky, go go back. Same thing happens. During the day, they're completely different people. And they grow up, and at some point, something happens. And the whole stuff starts flooding back. Along the lines of what happened to you, but much more, much worse even. And then you think you're going crazy. And all the stuff starts flowing back. I hope at that point you find somebody who can hold you and to contain you, which, again, you write beautifully in your book how beautifully your husband also really was there. It was really extraordinary. Uh, But at that point, we need somebody to help us and not to label us and say, you're crazy, take drugs, which you will almost certainly do when you go to a psychiatrist, Uh, but somebody who can say, let's find a safe place for you to be, hold you, calm yourself down. And unfortunately, there's not enough places like that uh, that I can think where people can go. And that's where, you know, at at our annual conference this year, um, I'm going to really... We have a bunch of people who do, have set up peer support systems. And I think what we need more and more is peer support systems of people who are there for each other, like that group who just said we are 20 people from the same, who are half siblings. I think it's very important that... um, We move towards deprofessionalizing this and not making it depend on insurance companies and really for people to make a commitment to helping each other. You know where I learned that? In China. I was immediately invited to spend a month in China and with a group of people of professional women, about a thousand professional women who have peer support systems. They get together once a week and they get together once a month with a larger group of people and they have conferences and meetings and uh, and they have a terrific system of just people being there for each other and getting help to be there for each other. Mm. So we're going to port yet another thing from China.
0: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets.
3: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I used to have so many men.
0: How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications.
3: She had a Harvard plaque
1: Should I read the other memoirs, reverse order or start at the beginning? <laughs> that's funny. I was, I was afraid with Inheritance that, it would, that no one would ever read any of my earlier memoirs now because I was wrong. <laughs> um, but that's not, that's not actually what's happening at all. It's really interesting. I have no opinion about the order. I, I think you could move backwards in time um, I mean, essentially, from my first memoir, slow motion, all the way through inheritance, it's one body of work. I understand that now. There should be like a boxed set of them because it's, it's in, you know, it's it's 32 year old Danny looking back at 23 year old Danny, and then it's you know, young mom Danny with her spiritual ex- existential crisis, and then it's you know, married Danny thinking about marriage and walking along another person over time, um, but in a way. What I was exploring was always coming back to... I mean, one of the things I always say to my students is theme is just a fancy Ooh. literary term for obsession. Yeah. And we don't choose what obsesses us. And what obsessed me was understanding my dad. Yeah. I suppose understanding my mom, but that became more diagnostic than anything. I mean, understanding my dad in terms of like what was his sorrow, what was his pain, what made him him... Um, and it's there through all of my books. My Aunt Shirley, my father's younger sister, called me when she had read Devotion, which I was afraid she would find painful because there's a lot in there about how I didn't feel like I belonged in my family even then. And she said, she was crying when she called me, and she said, it's like a Kaddish for your father. Mm. Um, Kaddish meaning like a um, like a prayer. Uh, it's it's a, it's a it's an homage, it's an offering. And all my work was in some way that. Um, so in a way, I think reading them is just it's kind of re- reading a life, reading a life in which something wasn't known that, that was known later, that was being informed by... There's a phrase that I use that I mentioned to you, um, a psychoanalytic phrase that the psychoanalyst Christopher Bolas used and has written about... Um, the unthought known, um, which I kept thinking about mm. while I was reading The Body Keeps mm. the Score. You know, we, we are driven in so many ways by what we know but can't bring ourselves to think. When you talk about, you know, the gut instinct or the way that the body keeps the score, the way, the way that the body reveals to us what, mm. we, are, what we can't reveal to ourselves... Um,
2: if you allow it, if you allow yourself to listen, that's, that's the right. big thing.
1: If you allow yourself to yeah, e- uh, even be yeah. in a position to feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay. But in terms of the box set, you know, after after people uh, see King Lear, they don't go like, "Okay, I've seen Shakespeare. That's enough." Uh, and he went went back to the same themes over and over again. So, I think reading several <laughs> of the books might be useful. <laughs>
1: Um, how did you, oh, I guess this probably could be for either of us, how, how did you overcome your own trauma uh, in its physical manifestations? How, does, how did it manifest or show up for you? So I can say a couple of things about that okay. because writing about trauma is really hard. Writing about physical sensation is like one of the banes for writers. I mean, how many ways can your heart pound or your palms sweat or you know, your stomach drop or, you know, your fingers tingle. It's like, it's too easy to enter the realm of, you know, cliche in some way. Um, Time, I mean, in part, time. um, I really was dizzy for a year. Um, And I stopped having a relationship with my own body. I've I've had a yoga practice since 1990. I stopped practicing yoga. Mm. I would unroll my mat and the body that had been on that mat no longer felt like the body that was now... I mean, it was the strangest feeling of, like, I'm still the same person, but my understanding about myself is so altered. And, um, and so I, that drifted away from me, and I'm still struggling to get back to it. Um, meditation was tremendous for me. I have an app called Insight Timer that some of you may know that is, for me, a very valuable tool because it keeps me um, accountable. I have, I think it's 178 mm. days today and I don't want to break my streak. It gives you like a little, gives you a little gold star every right. time you finish your, it lets you know it circles the day Very of the good. week. And, yeah. you know, so even if it's a day where you think, oh my God, I it's just don't liturg- have time. The liturgy. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so that, that, that space that, um, but more than anything else, I mean, I'm curious, what would you, what would you say?
2: As uh, for me, the, the body piece is very important. Huh? Uh, I'm very much into that we are mammals. And, and there's a lot of stuff in my field about it. These days. So mammals need to feel safe with other mammals. And ma- uh, so the way my Stephen, friend Stephen Porter says, if you want to know what ma- mammals do, go to a pet store and look at what puppies do. They chase each other, they line top with each other, they snuffle each other. And so that part of us needs to come to life very basic bodies that like be with other bodies. And as long as that doesn't work, everything else is difficult. Um, In terms of specific things that I found, for me very helpful, is uh, uh, visiting yourself back then, and seeing what that kid went through. And we tend to sort of have contempt for ourselves as her kid and say, oh, he was so weak. He didn't stand up for himself. He wasn't tough enough. Um, She was so compliant or something. And so you you really have to, you get that self-hatred for how you behaved back then. And really going there and seeing what that kid went through. And if you had known then or had been as big then as you are now, you wouldn't have tolerated that. But at that point you go like, this kid had no choice but to behave like that. And to really, the, the big thing that comes up more and more is this issue issue of self-compassion, which it's I also see in your book, I have, to have a deep love for what that kid back there had to go through and put up with. And it's not because she was crazy or stupid, she was just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And to really know like, boy, if I'd known them what I know now, nobody would have gotten away with it. Um, and the other thing that you mentioned too complicated to explain is our, the psychodrama that I learned from El Paso uh, of recreating the real scene of what happened back then and then creating in three-dimensional space an ideal scene where somebody says to you, if I'd been your dad, I wouldn't have been a drinker. You could have been proud of me. I would have come home with my uniform as a policeman and you would have said, wow, my dad looks great. You wouldn't have needed to be afraid that I was going to drink and beat you up later on. And so you you create three-dimensional structures, as we call it, where you create new realities. And it's astounding to me how I've never worked with somebody who Stuff people, grown-up people who say, oh, this is not real. People always like, oh, my God. If that had happened when I was three years old, my whole life would have been different. And people really get this new reality instilled inside of them. So they, they start living in a different map of themselves than a map that has determines how they live.
1: Yeah. And, and is that in part because it is being placed in three dimensions? Yeah,
2: I think the three dimensions are the critical thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have... People around you who enact, like, if I say to you, um, if I, you say to me, um, I choose somebody over there to be your mom, and I say, okay, will you be my mom? And you say to me, where would you like the mom, your mom to be? I so, said, you should be right there, not a little bit further back, turn a little bit, slump over a bit, yeah. And there's something in your right brain, that's a spatial brain, it's not logical and not time determined that has an internal image of who people are and then you bring other people in and say, oh my god, that's what my internal world looks like when I see a three-dimensional space and then you can start moving it around, Mm -hmm. it's it's amazing, I'm still astounded by it. Yeah,
1: That's beautiful. I think we uh, are out of time uh, and that's a beautiful place to, to end. Bessel, I want to thank you so much for this conversation. It's a pleasure. Um, And thank you all for coming.
2: Thank you all.